This morning's passage comes from Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to ask if you would follow along in your bulletins. You can also follow in your own Bibles. We're working through the book of Revelation this morning on the seventh chapter. I'm going to read the word of God aloud, but let me ask you if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the vision of Jesus Christ delivered to John the Apostle, first for the seven churches in Asia, and then for the church at large. These are the words of Christ, Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? 
Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of looking together at your word. We ask our Father this morning that your spirit would be here at work among your people, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit says to the churches, that we would be encouraged in our faith strengthened, given great assurance, but also challenged and stretched and sanctified by the work of your Spirit through the hearing of your Word in our hearts and minds for your glory and for our good. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, as we set out upon this middle section of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 16, I want to remind you that we need to be careful not to get lost in the weeds, okay? Uh, We need to be careful to keep an eye on the forest and not to be consumed with the trees, with the details, to be consumed with what's happening in any moment, but to continue to keep our eyes fixed on the larger picture. I kind of got a laugh this past week as I was preparing for the sermon thinking about this. I was reading one of the commentaries that I read each week, and the commentator got to the seventh chapter, and here's how he introduced this chapter. It's a little comical. He said, I have set this out in my commentary as a separate section because it will undoubtedly be the most wearying part of the entire book to read. The reader who gets tired easily should give it a brief glance and then they should move on. See, that's what we need to be careful of, okay? We don't want to be so consumed with the details in reading this book that we lose sight of what God is doing in the larger vision that He has given to the church through His Son, Jesus Christ, to the Apostle John, to be delivered to us. And so this morning, as we begin looking at the seventh chapter, I want to remind you of something that we began with in chapter 1. As we opened this book, we established for ourselves important principles for understanding the book of Revelation. Those principles lay the foundation for us if we're to make sense of the book of Revelation, namely... We must constantly be reminded that this is a prophetic book written in an apocalyptic style, it's an apocalyptic vision, that is given to us in the form of signs and symbols, figurative language depicting truth that God has given to us. Not only that, but it was delivered to the Apostle John to give to the churches, first of all, in Asia Minor, and then broadly to be read aloud in all the churches. And if you remember in chapter 1, it must be understandable. For the commendation at the beginning of this book is that those who read and understand the book will be blessed. Okay? So with all of that in mind, we need to work our way through the middle chapters of this book. As we look at Revelation chapter 7 then, 
I think it would be very helpful to remind us all what is the bigger picture. Where have we come and where are we going, okay? So uh, let me draw it out for you briefly, get a little oral history of where we began in Revelation chapter 4. I'll start at the bottom corner. In Revelation chapter 4, John says a door was opened into heaven. I imagine it didn't look like this, okay? But I want you to remember what is described in chapter 4. A door was opened into heaven. And John sees through the door, not into literal heaven, but into a figurative picture of the center of the universe, where God is seated on his throne, orchestrating all of the events of creation from the dawn of history until the end, okay? So most importantly, in that vision, John sees the throne of God. And for as often as I have drawn this throne over the last five weeks, you would think I could do a better job. Okay, there's the throne. John sees the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, and he sees the one who is seated upon it, and from the vision that he receives, it is obvious to us that he is given a vision of God the Father, seated on the throne in dominion and authority, decreeing the things that come to pass. And you remember there's the scene with the angels in heaven that are executing the decrees of God and carrying out all of his plans. Most importantly, at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, John sees the one who's seated on the throne reaches forth his right hand, and in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne, there is a scroll. And the scroll we began talking about last week, okay? The scroll and the right hand of God the Father is the representation of the plans that God has for all of history, specifically from the first coming until the second coming of Christ. These are the plans that God has ordained from of old, and they are at this point in Revelation chapter 4, they are sealed with seven seals. All right, you remember that from the beginning of chapter 5. And at that moment, John says that he began to weep loudly because there was no one found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to access the plan of God for the rest of history. At that point, John sees between the throne and the living creatures the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the one who came in the flesh to take our sins, okay? The second part of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he appears there. He's described as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb standing as if slain, and most importantly in Revelation 5, he boldly approaches the throne of God the Father. He takes the scroll from his right hand, and in Revelation chapter 6, we began to look at last week, he begins to break each one of the seals of the scroll. If you remember the first four last week, there was a horse and a horseman riding the horse. This is a depiction of the judgment that's unfolding in the plan of history that God has ordained. In the fifth seal, we see the people of God who are waiting on the Lord God, and they say, How long, O Lord, how long must we wait? In the sixth seal we saw last week was the judgment of God on the final day when he returns. You remember the language that was used. The sun is blackened. The moon is red. The mountains are thrown into the sea and the skies are rolled up like a scroll. That's the sixth seal. 
This morning we see in chapter 7 what I would describe as an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal. This morning we read about two groups of people, okay, as an interlude in the breaking of the seals of the scroll. Now listen, I want to tell you something. In the first week, I mentioned this, but I'll keep mentioning it, Revelation is not a book of chronological order. We do not read from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22 and see one event that follows the next event that follows the next event, okay? We said this is not a puzzle that's being unfolded that that we have to decipher. Rather, it's a picture that's being painted. So here's what's happening. You might rightly view Revelation as a painting that God has painted. He has now put it before John the Apostle, and every chapter is bringing a light to bear on one portion of the painting. So we see a portion, and then the light will move, and we see another portion of the painting that God is revealing to the church. I say that because the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal doesn't happen in chronological order. How do we know that? Because in the sixth seal, God is decreating. He's judging the creation, and everything is being destroyed. And as we open the seventh chapter, we read in the third verse, the angel says to the other four angels at the corners of the earth, the angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or anything in it until the people of God, the servants of the living God, have been sealed on their foreheads. You see how that's not a chronological story? The sixth seal is judgment on the earth. Everything is destroyed at that moment. The angel in chapter 7 says, do not harm the earth or the sea or anything in it until the people have been sealed. We're panning to another part of the story. Okay? And this will happen like six or seven other times in the book of Revelation. So you'll be reading about where, where, where we, what are we doing here. The story moves on to either a different character or a different theme or a different part of the story, okay? And we'll begin to see how these things fit together. Now listen, as you do it though, it's, it's, it is not, a, it's not an, uh, uh, an, an unpredictable shift in the storyline. What's happening in chapter 7 is God is answering the question that was posed at the end of chapter 6, okay? You remember the end of chapter 6? Judgment is unfolding, and the people on whom judgment is unfolding, they say, hide us from the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Hide us, lest we fall under the wrath, for in this day of judgment, who can stand? Chapter 7 is answering the question, who can stand, okay? Essentially, they're saying God is judging creation. Who, who Who can survive this? Who will live to see another day? Who can stand in the midst of the presence of the living God? Essentially, chapter 7 is saying these two groups of people will, okay? And who are the two groups of people mentioned in this chapter? It's the 144,000, that's verses 1 through 8. It's a great multitude that's mentioned, that's verses 9 through 17. These people will stand in the day of judgment, The question then that we have to ask this morning is a very simple question. What is the relationship between the 144,000 and the great multitude? What's the relationship between them? It's a simple question. You can kind of cheer for simple questions in the book of Revelation. Very easy question. What's the relationship between the 144,000 and the great multitude? Let's talk about each of these groups, and then we'll talk about the relationship between the two, okay? Okay. As you know, 
likely there's lots of disagreement, confusion about what's happening in chapter 7. So I want to begin with the great multitude. In honor of Revelation, the non-chronological book, let's begin with the end of the chapter first. The great multitude is described beginning in verse 9, and it says there, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Okay? So a number of things we'll say this morning about the great multitude. Let me point out a few. First of all, they're described in the very first part of this verse as a great multitude that no one could number. Now, as you hear that being said, you, let, you, you ought to say, well, that's kind of strange, right? It's strange for a variety of reasons, not the least of which that we know that God has numbered them. Of course he has. He's numbered the hairs on our heads. He's numbered the sparrows in the heavens. He knows the thoughts of our minds. Of course the living God has numbered the multitude. So why are they described as a great multitude which no one could number? It is a reminder to us that the book of Revelation connects us often to the Old Testament scriptures, okay? Every time we're given a description that seems odd or out of place, we ought to first ask the question, where have we heard this before? What is this connecting us to in God's revelation to us? And if you think for a second and you rack your memory Where have you heard in Scripture a description of a multitude which no one could number? This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the promises God gave to Abraham when he said to Abraham, I am taking you out of your land and your people to make you a people for my own possession, and from you will come a great people." like the stars in the sky, like the grains of sand on the seashore. You remember those promises, don't you, in the book of Revelation? I'll give you one in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, as God is promising these things to Abraham, he says, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Remember that? As the original church was was hearing the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they heard in verse 9 a great multitude which no one could number, I have to imagine that the bells and the whistles were going off in their mind, and they were saying, well, that's the people that was promised to Abraham. That's, That's the agreement that God made with Abraham, that he would make a great people from Abraham. And we know as we read the New Testament, of course, this is the fulfillment that is depicted in the church and the believers of God from old and new, from from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Here they are. They are the great multitude promised to Abraham. We are his spiritual heritage. And now they're here depicted in heaven, worshiping the living God. Okay, so that's the great multitude. Verse 9 also says it's a a great multitude from every tribe and nation and tongue and people, okay? And and that, you you think about what that represents. 
that represents something very clearly laid out by Jesus Christ at the Great Commission, right? This is my good news. You are to take this to the ends of the earth, and now we pan forward from that beginning of the commission given to the followers of Jesus Christ. We pan forward, and what we see now in heaven is the fulfillment of the commission that Christ has given. Here they are. They're from every tribe and nation and tongue and language and people group. They are now here together as one people of the possession of God to glorify and to worship Him. As Paul says then in Galatians 3, there is there now therefore no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female. And that depiction is the depiction of the breaking down of the walls that once prevented people from all nations of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things have been reduced, and now the offer goes out freely. And here they are, the people of God, from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group. Now listen, honestly, the great multitude is not the hard part of this passage, are they? We understand what the great multitude represents. After all, it actually says it in the passage, doesn't it? Verse 13 and 14. There, one of the elders addressed John, and the elder says, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And this is one of the top ten things that John says in the book of Revelation for me. Uh, I love his response to the elder. He doesn't attempt to explain it. I get the feeling that maybe he's getting weary of trying to decipher the vision that he's receiving. And so he says to the elder, when the elder asks, he says, sir, you know. It feels like he's saying, please just tell me. Would you just explain what's going on? And there the elder responds and indeed answers his question. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the lamb. And if you remember last week, I told you that word tribulation is a buzzword, but the way it's depicted in Revelation is from the first coming until the second coming of Christ, the people of God will live in a time of tribulation. So the elder is answering John, telling him, hey, these are the ones who by faith have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ from his first coming until his second coming, and they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And being washed by the blood of the Lamb, they now wear these white garments, okay? These are the people of God. They're depicted here in heaven, worshiping, glorifying him, honoring him as they praise him, as the people of his own possession. That's the great multitude. But what about the 144,000? They're described in verses 1 through 8. Okay, You remember them. We read that list. You probably got tired of hearing it, maybe as we get to the 7th or 8th tribe. But the 144,000, I'm sure you're familiar with the variety of interpretations that have gone into trying to understand the 144,000. There are some ideas that I think are just blatantly wrong. I'll probably mention one or two of those this morning. There are other ideas that maybe some of you hold here in the congregation this morning. I, I may try to challenge those, but we'll talk about them as we work through the passage. Let me give you some observations and then tell you what I believe is happening in verses one through eight. First of all, I think it's very problematic 
to see the 144,000 in verses 1 through 8 as a remnant of Israel. Okay, I'll just tell you that from the beginning. I think it's problematic to see them as a remnant of Israel. You probably know that some have seen this as a return of Jesus Christ before the judgment, the day of judgment, a return to Israel, whereby a whole group of Jewish ethnic Jews come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you why I think that's problematic. There's a few reasons. First of all, I'm not sure if you noticed, but the list that's given here is a strange list. You might not have noticed it at all. You might have, you know, you, you read the 12 tribes of Israel and you say, there's Judah and there's Reuben. Okay, we'll just get to the end. We, there's the 12 tribes. Um, and as I said, you probably heard me reading the 12,000, the 12,000, the 12,000, and it's likely your eyes glazed over a bit and you checked out, okay? But this, this list is not a list that appears anywhere in the Old Testament that I can find, okay? So first of all, we, some have said, well, this is the, the 12 sons of Jacob, Check it out. It's not the 12 sons of Jacob. Dan is missing. Okay, so Dan can't be found in the list. Joseph is there, where sometimes we don't see Joseph. But who has replaced Dan, one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh? Okay, well, that's, I don't know. You know, fine if Manasseh's there, but where's Joseph's other son? Ephraim, right? Ephraim is the one who was blessed by Jacob. He, he took the inheritance of Manasseh. He's the one who receives the blessing from Jacob, his grandfather. So we would expect maybe Ephraim to be here if Dan was taken out and the sons of Joseph were put here. But no, there's Manasseh with his father, Joseph. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the order of the, the tribes is all out of order. It's not in the way it ought to be. We begin with Judah, which, okay, well and good. Sometimes Judah does appear as the first. But then the, the list usually goes to the sons of Rachel and of Leah, but we begin with the sons of the concubines here. That, that's where the list goes, and then we get to the sons of, of Rachel and Leah. It's a very problematic list if we're seeing 12 actual tribes of Israel. Some people have proposed that this is the tribes that received an inheritance in the land. Okay, So, so Dan didn't get an inheritance, but Manasseh did. Well, there's another problem with that. Levi doesn't get an inheritance, but Levi's there. Levi's the, the tribe of the priest. They had no possession in the land, okay? It's a very problematic list. But listen, I have to tell you something. John knew that. I mean, Jesus knew that. God knew it as he gave the vision, and John recorded it, and the churches knew that. It was obvious to them that this was not a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was not, as some have proposed, a mistake, okay? It was not as if John was writing, and oh, man, I, 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 you said Dan, and I wrote Manasseh, okay? It's not what's happening in verses 1 through 8. So I think there's an intentional, different list that's given to us that we're supposed to pick up on and say, well, something's not right here, okay? Because as we've talked about, this is a figurative book, and there's a figurative illustration that's being given to us. All right, I'm going to tie that together as we talk about this 144,000, but just hold that in your mind for a second. Let's make a second observation. Second observation is that the numbering is obviously figurative, isn't it? We've gone through this book, and we've talked about the sevens, and we've talked about the threes, and we've talked about, you know, all the numbers that are appearing here, and we've talked about what they represent in apocalyptic literature. And it's obvious that this is not a literal numbering of people. It is a figurative representation for us. Why? Because 12, 12 again, a number of completeness, a number of uh, uh, 
a thorough uh, fullness. The list is completed. The, that's, there's 12 tribes of Israel and, and 12 disciples. And, and we see 12 as a, as a depiction of that. And, and thousand, well, thousand is a multiplication of, of like uh, doubling of, of completeness and doubling of fullness. And so there are 12,000 in each tribe and you take the 12,000 times the 12 and that's 144,000. And we are given a depiction of a group of people which is a perfect and full, robust, complete, lacking in nothing group of people from among the people of God. That's the depiction that's happening in verses 1 through 8. Third observation. We're going to see the 144,000 again. It's not the last time we see them. When we get to chapter 14, there the 144,000 appear again, and it's, it is obvious in chapter 14 that that group of 144,000 is believers from among all the earth. As a matter of fact, it says as much, word for word. Believers from all the earth in chapter 14. So that helps clarify it for us. Fourth observation, in verse 3, the angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or anything in it until the servants of God have been sealed on their forehead. The angel doesn't say until all of Israel or until the, the tribes of Israel. The angel says until all of the servants have been sealed on their foreheads. The angel there doesn't make a distinction, okay? It's for all of these reasons and more. As we look at the list of the 144,000 in verses 1 through 8 that I would submit to you this morning, I believe these are one and the same, these groups. The 144,000 in verses 1 through 8 is the same as the multitude in verses 9 through 17, okay? After all, this is consonant or it's in line with everything we read in the New Testament epistles, right? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans, he will speak about the new Israel. He will speak about the the branches that have been cut out and the new ones that have been grafted in. He will speak about the promises of God given by the mouths of the prophets that are now true for the church, okay? He will speak about the true people of God. Often, John, who records this vision, you go pick up his gospel, you will find a variety of ways and circumstances in which he speaks of the new people of God. To them, the promises have been given, okay? And so I truly believe that the very same thing is happening in Revelation chapter 7, where the 144,000 from all the tribes of the people of God is a depiction of the great multitude. But if that's the case, then we have a bigger question. Then why are they written or recorded in this way? Why would God, in the same chapter, give us a picture of the 144,000 and a picture of the great multitude? It's the same people. Why not just begin with the same people? Why not just make it plainly clear and, and go through the list, okay? It's a really important question for us to ask of this chapter, and let me tell you something. I, I believe, as we look at the description in chapter 7, we're talking about the same people, two very different states of existence, okay? Again, I think the camera is panning. I think it's moving from... Here's the people of God in one circumstance. Here's the people of God in another circumstance, okay? Let me tell you something. The group of 144,000. Look at the list, the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at how they're depicted there. Where else have you seen lists like this in the Bible? Think about it. 
we, we've, we've seen these lists, when we go back to the Old Testament, we've seen lists that are almost always done as a census in preparation for battle, right? Okay, that's what's happening in Scripture. Uh, David does it. David does it twice, I think. One time wrongly, one time in a right way. We see it in First and Second Kings. We see it when the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they're, they're going into the wilderness, preparing to enter the promised land. The, the tribes are numbered. The numbers are read out loud in preparation for the battle, okay? This 144,000 very much resembles preparation for battle, that the people are being numbered and they're being listed out. It makes sense then that John would see, say at the beginning of this passage, I heard the number of the 144,000 and then I saw the great multitude. He is hearing the numbers read aloud from the general who sits on the throne or from the voice of the angel, hearing the numbers read aloud as a preparation for battle. And let me tell you something, that makes a whole lot of sense then as we go to chapter 8 and chapter 9, because what happens in chapter 9? In chapter 9, John sees the numbers of the, uh, the military of Satan, okay? There's a depiction of the military might of Satan, and there he says their numbers are 200 million. 200 million in chapter 9, preparing to wage war against the living God. So it makes sense then in verses 1 through 8, that God would begin by numbering the people of God in preparation for battle. Let me tell you something. In a second, it's not the battle that you think it is, and we'll talk about that, but let me just say something here. Listen, it's a description of the church. I'll write it up here. The church militant. You probably have heard that phrase before. The church militant. This is the church in this world engaged in the battle that Christ often describes that we've been talking about through this book. This is the church that is engaged in a, in a spiritual warfare. So the question for you is very simple. Why do we often live as if we're at peace with the world? Why, why do Christians in this world often live as if we're at peace with the world and the world is at peace with us, as if Satan himself is at peace with us? The, the Bible often calls us to, to be on our guard, to be careful for the battle rages. The apostle Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and demons. The, the war is waging on, and the interlude here this morning is a preparation for battle. The living God is numbering his people, and he is depicting us the very scene that is unfolding on this earth where we are engaged, where, where we are seeing the battle unfold. And we are being numbered among the people of God. Now let me tell you something also. Two same groups of people, different states of existence, okay? This is the people of God on the earth. Here they are very clearly depicted as in heaven. This is a picture of the church triumphant. And aren't they triumphant? You can see some of the indicators of that in the passage. They are given white robes and they're waving palm branches, okay? Well, that's a dead giveaway. It was, it was very culturally appropriate in the day if, if, a, if a, a nation had a great military victory and the people were at peace for the people to put on their, their white garbs and to go out with palm branches waving in victory. It's kind of what's happening at Palm Sunday. 
which is going to happen in just a few weeks, okay? The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city. And the people are saying, here comes our king. He's going to take down the, the Roman emperor. And they're waving palm branches. The depiction of the great multitude is the same as the 144,000, but here in heaven, they are the church triumphant. They are the church victorious. They're the church that is at rest. They're the church that has been redeemed, saved, reconciled, and now they are in the presence of the living God. But it's the same group of people. As we think about chapter 7 this morning, though, let me make one final observation. It's subtle, but I think it's important for our understanding of the book of Revelation, okay? The numbers are being read aloud in chapter 7. It's as if the people of God are being prepared for battle. But as you read the book of Revelation, what does the battle look like for the church? What type of warfare are we being called to? What is our role in this battle? What has God ordained for us? What are our responsibilities? Let me tell you something. You may be surprised, as we read the book of Revelation, we will never see the church engaged in hand-to-hand combat, overt, covert warfare. We'll never see the church taking up weapons in the book of Revelation. Actually, This group described in chapter 7, they never go into battle at all in the book of Revelation. It's kind of interesting. Their numbers are numbered. They're counted out. It's as if they're prepared for battle, and then they never go into battle. They never raise a hand. There's a lot of fighting that goes on in Revelation. We'll get to Armageddon in chapter 12. The angels will battle it out with Satan. It will say that that Satan is waging war against the children of God. Those things are true. But we never see in the book of Revelation this call to go forth and, and fight with Satan, children of God. I don't know if you noticed it, but the people of God throughout the book of Revelation, even as they're numbered for battle, they're doing one thing. One thing alone. You see what they they're doing again and again? They're singing. It's amazing to me. They're being numbered as the people of God as if to prepare for battle, and then we see them over and over again, and their job is to sing in the choir. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? You you see that happens at the, the end of this chapter. There we see them singing in verses 10 and verse 12, and their song is this. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verse 12, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's seemingly, that's why the people of God are numbered. God preparing for the final battle, numbering his people. And then he says, now you have a very important role. You sing my praises. You declare my glory. You talk about my power. You join together your voices in the choir. At Armageddon, at the final judgment, at the battle where Satan is thrown into the the lake of fire, The living God has called us simply 
to praise his holy name. After all, how silly would it be for God to number people to prepare for his battle? He doesn't need us to fight his fight. He's got myriads of angels and living creatures so mighty and powerful. He is the ancient of days enthroned on his throne, surrounded by fire and great gems and rainbows. He is the one who has numbered our days, not only numbered our days, but numbered the days of Satan himself, who has made the beginning from the end and who has declared how long Satan will be given a limited power until his final day. God, our God, has numbered his people, his army, to become an army of worshipers. And as we worship, we're reminded of what Paul tells us, that we are to stand having fastened the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness for shoes the gospel of peace. The shield of faith that extinguishes the arrows of Satan, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of his spirit that is his word. These are the things given to the church by our Father who sits on his throne. And in using these things, we are worshiping our God and Father. This is our part in the battle. This is what we've been called to. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything, but our sufficiency is from God. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. This is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of the people of God. It is for this reason that verse 15 says this, therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the good news. That's the really good news that God does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. Would you please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You have called us as your people, into battle. But our battle is not as we conceive of it. Our battle is not taking up arms. It is not fighting demons and Satan on the battlefield where weapons of human design have any effect. It is not waiting for the final day of Armageddon where we will raise up arms and and fight that war, it is as voices in the choir of God, the living God. It is declaring your praises. It is taking up the word of God. 
and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace. It is depending and resting upon you alone for victory. And we thank you that this book of Revelation says nothing of our own efforts, but it says everything of your work from your throne decreeing everything that comes to pass and your created beings carrying out your very word for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord God, would we see that you have ordained, you have ordained all that comes to pass and you have done so for our good and so would we trust you. Will we stand ready to sing and declare your praise? We thank you that you have seen fit to prepare us for this job. And so, Lord God, would you make us, by your Spirit, willing and able this morning to join with the angels and the creatures and the elders and those who have been redeemed in heaven and on earth throughout all of history, would you make us willing and able to sing your praises this morning. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.